to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, our focus this morning will be on verses 27 through 30. We'll be reading verses 12 through 30. Philippians 1, 12 through 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Sovereign Lord, You are holy, and You're the, gi- you're the giver of every good gift. And in Christ, all things work together for good. For Your saints, those who love You. And so give us eyes to see as your Lord, sovereign over all, that everything that comes our way, because we are in Christ, everything that comes our way, while it might not be good 
considered in and of itself as it comes from your hand, there is only good that lies ahead of us. And so grant us a kind of maturity maturity to receive your gifts so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. The book of Philippians is so full of joy that as we too often leap about from our favorite passage here and there, we can forget the conflict in which and out of which those statements were made. Paul is suffering. The Philippians are suffering. Paul rejoices, and he calls for the Philippians to rejoice. And the glorious thing is that he calls for this, and he demonstrates this, not merely despite the suffering, but because of the suffering. It's not that Paul takes delight A kind of masochistic kind of delight in the pain and the suffering itself. But in the way it serves the gospel. I want you to know brothers. That what has happened to me. Suffering. Has served to advance the gospel. And therein is his delight. Paul's command that we have in verse 27 is meant to move the Philippians towards the same kind of stance. To live worthy of the gospel of Christ is to have a kind of ready stance to grapple with any suffering that might come our way for the cause of Christ. Now many saints will acknowledge that there's a battle. But other than my post-millennial friends, who I think get it wrong in a different way, other than my post-mill friends, I get the sense that most Christians, in thinking about the battle, are depressed, sad, despondent, defeated. They can't rejoice, I believe, because they are ambitious For a lost cause. They're trying to win the culture using worldly tactics. Rather than standing firm. And striving side by side for the gospel. Confident of Christ's already victory. However things may appear. Rather than winning the culture using their own tactics, let us as heavenly citizens live as citizens of that kingdom, knowing we don't belong here. And that frees you, that liberates you in this fight, confident that victory is already certain, all things will be made new. The resurrected Christ advances his kingdom. And He does so. He's chosen to do so. He doesn't need us, but He's chosen to do so through His people. And He does so. Most often, read the story all the way through. This is His M.O. 
through their weakness, their pain, their suffering. This is why the apostles, whenever they were beaten by the council, charged no longer to speak the name of Jesus, departed, we're told, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then we're told that every day in the temple and, in, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, this is the kind of resilient rejoicing that Paul is modeling in this letter, that Paul is calling for. And such resilient rejoicing, while it's not the sum total of what it means to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, it is a huge part of the equation. It's the part that Paul directs his most intense focus to in this letter. The kind of rejoicing that Paul is putting forward in this letter is a kind of resilient rejoicing in the face of suffering for the cause of living worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 27 again transitions us to the body of this letter. The verse introduces the thesis for the entire letter. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's not only the thesis for this letter, that's the thesis for the Christian life. This is an all-encompassing command, not just for this letter, but for the Christian life in total. And so before we move on, we need to understand that everything then in this letter and everything we're going to look at in verses 28 through 30 today is rooted in this command. And so let's briefly review the command. The only with which it opens is both connective and emphatic. It's connective, bringing us back to what Paul has just said. He, he intends to visit them for their progress and joy in the faith. But should he not only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ? But it's also emphatic. There's a priority to this command. There's a sense in which one only needs this only command. With this command then, Paul is saying not only whatever happens, whether I come to you or not. He's not only saying whatever happens, but whatever else. Let your living as heavenly citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then the words, let your manner of life be, translate a single verb in the original language that there's no neat way to get it into English. The sense of it is live as a citizen. And the citizenship that Paul has in mind becomes clear in chapter 3 and verse 20 where he tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. The word you have is citizenship in 3.20 is the noun cognate, a noun derivative, has, has the same root of the word that you have Translated as, let your manner of life be. Live as heavenly citizens. That's the command. And you get a sense of what it means to live as a heavenly citizen then. It begins to unfold. You begin to sense that the taste and flavor of that kind of command, I believe, in 2, 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish 
in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's a distinctness that comes with being a heavenly citizen, a a not belonging to this wicked world, twisted generation. As heavenly citizens, we don't belong here. Our manners, our customs, our language even, our behavior belong to another place. We're aliens, sojourners, strangers. And the thing that our behavior conforms to, the thing that our behavior is becoming of, the thing it fits, it corresponds to, is the gospel of Christ. Now drawing on this connective aspect of only, verse 27, getting in into verse 20, the latter part of verse 28, which we haven't covered yet, Getting into the the connective aspect, Paul says he wants to hear something of them, whether or not he comes and sees them. Whether I come and see you or an absent, he wants to hear something about them. Before moving on to what Paul wants to hear, consider this. Paul wants to hear this, whether or not he comes. Paul is saying he's irrelevant. Paul has said that to live is Christ, and to die is gain, and the gain that he outlines is being present with Christ, to, die, to live is Christ, to die is Christ. He didn't say to live is Paul. And he wants these Philippians to live. So in that, Paul's irrelevant. Paul doesn't matter to live as Christ. Paul can die and they can see him no more. But it's the risen Christ who is present with them by his spirit in whom they live and for whom they are to live. Paul has said he perceived it was necessary for him to come and be with them for their joy and progress in the faith. Verse 24. And following. It's necessary for him to come and be with them. But it's not that kind of necessary. We need, as the saints, we need the church. We need the body of Christ. We need shepherds. But it's not that kind of need. We need them because God has ordained for them to be the means through which the need comes to us, Christ, our life. And so as, a, as, as saints, we should be aware of any kind of independent Christianity, solo Christianity. Don't try to go it independent, but also don't go at it codependent either. Don't think you're going to fail when you get a substitute teacher. Jesus gives shepherds. He is the good shepherd. The call is not for them to live worthy of Paul, it's to live worthy of Christ. 
And so whether John MacArthur or not, whether I am your shepherd or not, and I'm not guaranteed another minute, whether this person's your life group leader or this one, if the person who's currently pouring into you and discipling you within this fellowship, if they die or if they move, whatever happens, let your living as heavenly citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When Christ takes away our favorite means, let us not betray that what we really were excited about were the means and not that which was ministered to us through them. Christ. May we behave whenever God sends us a substitute because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He's worthy. And He's our need. Whenever we turn to what Paul wants to hear, we see that almost immediately, the Spirit hasn't left us to tease out what it means to live worthy of the gospel of of Christ on our own. If this were World War II, Paul doesn't simply say, support your troops. Be a patriot. He gets specific. Grow a victory garden. And so, what it means to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel means that Paul will hear two things about them. If they do that, Paul will hear two things. So, these two things tell you something of what it means to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. He will hear, first, that they are standing firm, and second, that they're not frightened. And these are really two sides of the same thing, stated negatively and positively, and they correspond to what Paul has already told them about himself in verse 20, that it was his eager expectation and hope that he would not be ashamed, but that with full courage Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. So what does it mean to live as heavenly citizens? It means standing firm or courage. There's the positive. And it means not being frightened by your opponents or not ashamed. There's the negative. And further, they're to stand firm in unity, in one spirit and with one mind. In one spirit. It's debated whether or not spirit here should be capitalized. Does it refer to a human spirit, an ethos, a collective disposition or attitude? Or does it have the same sense of what we see in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6? And listen to all the kind of connections between that text and this text. And I think you'll be convinced as I am that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit here. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you. You see the same kind of thing happening already. Paul's position, and he has a command that he's giving them, and listen to the way he introduces it. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, does that not speak to where Paul is shortly to launch out of this text and going forward into chapter 2? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Even if Paul is referring to a kind of human spirit, a a kind of esprit de corps, If that's what he's referring to, underlying, foundational, and the only thing that gives rise to such a thing within the church properly is the unity that is created by the Spirit. And with one mind speaks to a kind of unity of thought and purpose. What is it that the saints in the Spirit find such unity in one mind, one one purpose. There's something that they're coming together on. It's not just unity for unity's sake. It is that in which they stand firm, for which they stand firm, is that which they strive together for. Paradoxically, you see, striving modifies standing firm. Stand firm striving. Stand firm has more of a defensive connotation to it. Striving, offensive. Stand firm, striving. Defending the gospel is like defending a cannon. The gospel, Paul's already told you, is advancing. It is not in, in, a, in a really profound way, realize this. It is not your duty to advance the gospel. The gospel advances. Your obligation is to guard it, protect it, stand firm on it, strive for it, proclaim it. But the gospel does the advancing on its own. I hope you see with this why so many calls to unity, love, peace within the church, why they fall flat. Why they're of no effect. There is unity. In the spirit. It is. The command Paul gave in Ephesians. Was not to create it. But to maintain it. It's already there. And don't act in a way. Where you mess it up. And how is it there? It's there in Christ. We're to be eager to maintain it. And if it's to be maintained. It's going to be maintained by not working counter to that which has created it. So stand firm for the gospel. Strive for the gospel. If there's to be unity, 
there needs to be a fight. Men need doctrine for there to be unity. Doctrine for which they both stand firm and they strive for. Jude admonishes us. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul commands Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, 1 Timothy 6.20. He repeats the command in 2 Timothy 1.14, adding this, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So if there's this unity that we're to have in the Spirit, I guarantee you, you will know nothing of it if you are not zealous to guard the deposit of the gospel by that Spirit. The Spirit is about promoting Christ, exalting Christ. The Spirit will be behind us if we're contending for the faith. And if we're involved in that collectively and together, therein the Spirit will unify us in Christ. Forfeit the gospel, and whatever unity you may think you enjoy, you will find to fail. Unity is not primary, unity is secondary. Unity is not the fruit. Unity is not the root. It is a fruit. This is not unity at all costs. This is a unity that's costly. This is not unity that ends all opposition. This is a unity that will stand up against all opposition. Too many saints are after a unity in which everyone will like us rather than the kind of unity that will stand solid even if everyone hates us. We are heavenly citizens. The citizens of this world think the message of the cross is folly. Saints, the very thing that unites us, Christ, is what this world will despise and mock. Unity with this world is enmity with our God. There is a unity that we only can taste of within the fellowship and body of Christ. And we will taste of it most deeply the more we are centered on, contend, love, affirm, proclaim the gospel of Christ. So don't be frightened. Stand firm. Strive together with your heavenly citizens against the ethos of this world. When the saints so live, when they stand firm without fear, they signify something. Verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When the saints stand firm and are not frightened, living as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, they signify 
the destruction of the wicked, and the salvation of the saints. How does that happen? Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you who are of more value than many sparrows. How is it signified? I be- that's truth. And that truth is, is made transparent and clear to this world to some degree whenever we stand firm and are not frightened. It, I believe it does something like this. It testifies to such people, to this world, that we have a life that they don't. And it's, it's a life that they can't, it testifies, we have a life they can't take, and it's a life that they don't have. We have a life they can't take, and it's a life they don't have. Whenever you stand firm for the gospel, and you're not frightened, it signifies to them in this way, their destruction and your salvation. Read the accounts of the martyrs. Read Fox's book of martyrs. Read uh, Richard Wormbrand's Tortured for Christ. Read Nick Ripkins. The insanity of God. And realize that more Christians are persecuted today than they've ever been throughout church history. Read missionary biographies like John Patton's autobiography or uh, the, the one by uh, To the Golden Shore concerning Adoniram Judson. And all the opposition and persecution they faced. Read of the persecution of the saints throughout history. Read the book of Acts. And again and again you will see the saints come off looking especially saintly. And the wicked especially wicked when such persecution happens. It begins to testify to this reality. Listen to how so many of the same themes build towards the same conclusion in 2 Thessalonians. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. Standing firm. Is what that's saying. Your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Didn't expect that following what he just said. We boast about you because of your steadfastness and your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. 
they aren't the ones being judged in those sufferings and persecutions. Listen to the way Paul goes on. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting Vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, whenever we stand firm and we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, It shouts loud to live Christ, to die gain. It sings triumphantly. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, amidst the brotherhood on high, to be at home with God. It is not death to close, the eye long dimmed by tears and wake in glorious repose to spend eternal years. It is not death to bear the wrench that sets us free from dungeon chain to breathe the air of boundless liberty. It is not death to fling aside the sinful dust and rise on strong exulting wing to live among the just. Jesus, thou Prince of life, thy chosen cannot die. Like thee they conquer in the strife. To reign with thee on high. Next, verse 29 is giving us a reason for, but what is it a reason for? Could go all the way back to verse 27, giving us another reason to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, Christ. But I believe it's giving us a reason why our salvation is signified when we stand firm, not fearing our opponents. For, it signifies your salvation because it has been granted to you two things. That for the sake of Christ, you're given two gifts. For Christ's sake. Not given just for you. God gives you these gifts for the sake of His Son. Two gifts. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Standing firm without fear demonstrates you've received both of those gifts. 
When you stand firm without fear, it demonstrates God has given you faith and the gift of suffering for that faith to be displayed. Magnifying the name of Christ. He's given you the gift of living worthy of the gospel of Christ. Saints, faith is a gift. It's not something you conjure up. It's something you do, but it's not something you conjure up in and of yourself. When you do it, you're doing a gift. It's something given to you. Faith is a gift like breathing is a gift. You didn't initiate that on your own. You were given life. In the same way, when you do faith, it's because it was given to you. You must believe, but God must give you the believing. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is the gift of God. What is the gift? Salvation through faith. That whole thing. That is the gift. If you do the faith that results in salvation, your doing is a doing of God's gift given to you. 2 Timothy 2.25 speaks of God granting repentance. Repentance is the flip side of faith. God gives His elect the coin of faith and repentance to drop into the slot of Christ. He gives it. While some struggle intellectually to acknowledge that faith is a gift... I'd say most every one of us have struggled emotionally to receive suffering as a gift. Insofar as we fail to receive suffering as a gift, there's a shortcoming in living as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And thus demonstrating, signifying the destruction of this world and the salvation of our souls. In other words, suffering is not embraced as a gift in those moments because we're not living for His sake. We're not living for the sake of the gospel of Christ to be demonstrated in our life. We're not engaged in the same conflict that Paul is and the Philippians are. Philippians 1, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 4, 12-16 promises and admonishes us saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And if you respond, yes, but 
all the suffering in my life is really disconnected from the gospel. Well, connect the dots. All the time that we encounter suffering, it should be our ambition that if we are suffering, it either be one, that we're suffering for righteousness sake, for the cause of Christ, or two, that we're suffering righteously. We're suffering in righteousness or with righteousness. Suffering for righteousness' sake is suffering for the sake of Christ. So if, you, if you're catching some flack at work because you're simply telling the truth, you're telling the truth should be you acting as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. That should be the reason you're telling the truth. You might have other motives at this point, might be selfish gain or something. There might be another reason. But if you're telling the truth and that's the reason you're catching flack, it should be because you're living as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. And thus, your suffering for righteousness' sake is suffering for the sake of Christ. Connect the dots. Or, if it's cancer, if it's sickness, when you suffer, with righteousness, with faith, with holiness. It's not using that as some kind of excuse of, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm bored to delve into some sin. But it drives you to prayer, wanting to sanctify that affliction. Whenever you suffer with righteousness in that way, you're suffering as a heavenly citizen, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christ is being magnified through that suffering, connect the dots. Make it about Jesus. If you're suffering, make it about Jesus. And remember the words of our Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. False falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering is a gift, like a father giving his sons a pair of really good work gloves. When you receive it, you know that gift means aching bones, and sweat, and toil. But whenever the plastic minifigure is long faded, the little rubber piece that held his torso together is rotted and he's come apart. Whenever gifts like that are long forgotten, the work gloves will be remembered, cherished, prized, even though they may have fallen apart as well. When Father and Son are united in purpose. There's, there's a task right in front of them. And they realize that's important. They want to do it. They enjoy it. And they enjoy one another. 
That's whenever such a gift is maturely received and delighted in, rejoiced in. Saints, you've received these two gifts from your Heavenly Father. Faith in Christ and suffering for the Christ in whom you believe. You've been given belief in Christ and suffering for the Christ in whom you believe. These two gifts signify your salvation. They serve as an opportunity for you to live as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. By standing firm, and not being frightened, and thus signifying to this world their destruction and your salvation. So let us receive these gifts as mature sons, laboring in the strength that our God provides. Communing as we do so with our Heavenly Father. Look to the task. Yes, it's hard. It's costly. But it's worth it. Christ is worthy. So let us live as heavenly citizens. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Declaring. To live. Christ. To die. Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray your Spirit we know there's unity in Christ. He's the head of this body. But there's, there's an there's a experiential aspect to that. There's a living out of that. We want to live the life you've given us in Christ. So I pray that your spirit would be profoundly upon us. Blessing this word. Unifying us. To stand firm. In and for the gospel. And to strive. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. We ask this, Father, because you're worthy. Your Son is worthy. Magnify His name in us, Father. For the cause of Christ, bless the preaching of your Word now by your Spirit so that we stand, we strive, zealous, To live worthy of Christ. We pray this. In his name and for his name. The name of your blessed son. 
Jesus. Amen.